the state of Tennessee is one of the few places where the sounds are just as breathtaking as the sights. Whether that's live music at an historic music venue, the crack of an open fire at a campsite in the wilderness, or hearing kids laugh as they explore what's right around the bend, Tennessee just sounds perfect. Start planning your trip at tnvacation.com. Tennessee sounds perfect. Whether this is her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls, starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct is everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct, your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Ridiculous History is a production of iHeartRadio. Welcome back to the show, Ridiculous Historians. Thank you, as always, so much for tuning in. Shout out to our super producer, Casey Pegram, our guest producer, Andrew Howard. Uh, we are recording on a lovely, darkish day here in Atlanta, Georgia. I am Ben. At least that's what they call me. My name is Noel. It's, 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 I haven't even, you know what? I'm going to be completely honest. I haven't even looked outside. Is it darkish? <laughs> I've got all the curtains drawn. Yeah. It's darkish in here in my recording bubble. There we go. Yeah. Uh, the, well, your inner weather matches the outer weather, as Robert Frost would say, because it's it's a little overcast. It's a it's a good day for uh, today's episode, which we teased a little bit, Noel, in our previous recording on. Oh, what what was it? It wasn't the bullfrog episode, but we do have. Oh, we do have a correction. I realized this. This has nothing to do with today's episode. But remember, we were talking about Taurin, the way that. Yeah. Carson had, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. Taurin, the astrological sign Taurus, right? The bull. Bullfrog. The bull. That's frog. what it was. Uh, how could we have <laughs> missed that? That's that's incredible. <laughs> yeah, those are some of the most like flowery diss letters I've ever read in my entire life. And they and I was there for it every step of the way. Yeah, they Belshazzarized <laughs> <laughs> yes. the people of Wendell. And our guest producer, Andrew Howard, when he wrote back to us with the edit said that it was a Belshazzarized edit, which I very much appreciated. Yes, yes. Thank you, Andrew. Uh, and today's episode is about inexplicable weather, about darkness. You know what it was? We talked about this when we were diving into the story of substitute kings uh, during the era of ancient Mesopotamia. If you were a priest in ancient Mesopotamia, you might be frightened that an eclipse would be a sign that your king would die. So their solution was to just temporarily hire 
another king oh. and then kill them. Yeah, the cosmological fake out. Everybody knows that move. It's also a really sick skateboard move. But yeah, I mean, for sure, they would just absolutely uh execute them and then i bet you they would be honored for the privilege you know the uh the person being executed they would have known the score it's not like it would have been a surprise like a wicker man that's scenario. True. yeah that's true that's true today's episode is about another dark day but this one remains a bit of a mystery even here in 2021 let's set the scene with some ominous sci-fi music. Andrew, we defer to you on this one. But uh, let's say, you know, you're up. It's it's mid-morning. You know, it's not quite noon. Maybe somewhere between 8 and 10 a.m. And then halfway through the morning, the sky turns yellow. All the animals around you are freaking out and they're running away. They're running for cover. And people who are observing this in New England like candles, they start to pray. By the time you would usually eat lunch, it's completely dark. It's as if night came early. You're asking yourself, if you're one of these residents of New England on May 19th, 1780, if this truly is the end of days. Yeah, I certainly would have asked myself that, given the time and the context. But let's go a little bit more into the time and the context. This really is kind of not too dissimilar from the bullfrog story. It, it is a, you know, a, an observation of a natural phenomenon that is interpreted in a certain way that ends up, you know, being something other than the most extreme alarmist thing that it could have been. So what happened? You're right, Ben. Friday, May 19th, 1780, the crack of dawn. We know what a sunrise looks like, but this sunrise looked more like a sunset in the morning, which is, which is odd to say the least. He starts seeing this very bizarre blood red hue kind of seeping through the sky. The sun was rising, but it was red. Uh, this kind of almost brass, kind of rusty red color uh, described as having a strange enchanting hue. And I got to give props to the New England Historical Society, as is the stock and trade from folks from that part of the country. Really flowery literary chops here in some of these descriptions. I'm just going to quote this verbatim from their article. Uh, a strange enchanting hue robed the rocks, trees, buildings, and water. Uh, this is uh, from Sidney Purley, a 19th century Salem historian. Rainwater gave off a strong sooty smell, and a black scum floated on rivers, especially the Merrimack. And that's from Richard Miller, Devons. Um, and he described Boston as having smelled like a malt house or a coal kin. And then after 9 a.m., another account says that a dark, dense cloud began to rise from the west and just kind of spread and seep into the skyline until it was entirely covered, except at the horizon where there was a small rim of light peeking through. Yes, and this got worse. By noon, the sky had darkened to this midnight blackness. And we have to remember that the population of this area was still in the throes of the ongoing War of Independence. So they would light candles. Many people were increasingly concerned. This was the biblical end of days, the last judgment being upon them. The birds fell quiet. But there was something else. They knew it wasn't a you know, a garden variety thunderstorm because there was no storm. 
So what did people do? They didn't go to work as normal. They crowded into local churches. And that led one minister, according to AmericanHeritage.com, <laughs> to dryly observe, quote, uh, the people were very attentive. So if he could give his congregation a Yelp review, I think they got five stars that day. This pattern went over a pretty wide swath of land. It was dark in Portland, Maine, as far north as there, and it was dark as far south as New Jersey. If people didn't go, not everybody went to churches, to be fair. Some people went to taverns, which I also, I find hilarious but understandable. Schools were closed. Uh, cattle went back to their stalls to hide of their own accord. And then the only animals that were really out and about at this time or vocal were the animals that would be around and making noises at night, like the night birds were whistling and singing their night songs. The frogs were ribbiting and croaking the way they would do in the wee hours. So what could this have been if this was not as Reverend Nathaniel Walker argued, a rebuke from Almighty God for the sins of the congregation, could it have been an eclipse, a blazing star? Could it have somehow been the heavenly transit of Venus? Uh, what we know for sure is that in the initial hours, most people thought it was a supernatural or divine phenomenon brought on by the Christian God. And uh, we have we have statements about this that you can see uh, from historians like Mike Dash in BBC.com. Yes, Mike Dash, uh, who has a fabulous name for a historian or, you know, maybe like a, a superhero or some sort of action star, you know, talks about how this part of the United States was very, very Protestant and took a uh, particular interest in the concepts of guilt and sin and redemption. Um, and he refers to this in, in his book, Borderlands, as being something of a set of paranormal beliefs, which, you know, depending on your uh, religious persuasion, one might argue one way or the other uh, on that. But um, either way, this was the immediate interpretation that folks would would go to in their minds when they would see something like this happening. Um, he talks about verses in Matthew that might have led these folks to believe that this was the second coming of Christ. There were so many natural events that would have been interpreted through a biblical lens at the time. Like even like, you know, birds flying in the sky were a sign of, of God-like intentions. The dark day, they thought, was uh, a warning to man, to, to like a Sodom and Gomorrah type situation, or at the very least a pre-Sodom and Gomorrah type situation. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And this affected so many members of society. Well, the actual meteorological phenomenon affected everybody, obviously, but due to the cultural and religious context of the day, it's fair to say most people assumed this was a religious event. Even members of the Connecticut legislature, which was called the state council, feared that the dark day was the actual facts day of judgment. Uh, some members of the council were pushing to adjourn the session. But then there were people like Abraham Davenport, another great name, who got some fame for his response to these requests to call it a day early. He said this, I am against adjournment. The day of judgment is either approaching 
or it is not. If it is not, there is no cause for an adjournment. If it is, I choose to be found doing my duty. I therefore wish the candles may be brought. So he was, I mean, that's ballsy, right? He's saying, you know what? It might be the end of the world, but I'm here to do a job. And my creator is not going to find me, you know, cowering at home. They're going to find me doing what I believe God meant me to do, which is approving these various bills and laws and arguing about, you know, bureaucratic things. So very, you know, uh, very strong words and probably great for his political future. Uh, we know that other members of the government wrote about this, including George Washington. He wrote about this in his diary, and we're all pretty sure that he was writing about this specific dark day, even though he may have gotten the date wrong. He said, Heavy and uncommon kinds of clouds, dark and at the same time a bright and reddish kind of light intermixed with them, brightening and darkening, alternately. This continued till afternoon, when the sun began to appear. The wind in the morning was easterly. After that, it got to the westward. For some reason, I always picture George Washington saying the wind. And, oh, of course. And, <laughs> and I also... I hate to say it, but our previous episodes on Washington have colored my perspective a little bit of him. I always picture him like kind of three beers deep just because of that eggnog. Oh, I know man. it's probably not true. No, that boozy eggnog, man. That stuff packs a wallop. We always get a jar of it uh, each Christmas from our buddy Alex Williams. And a jar will do you. No question about it. Do you in, in fact. The wind indeed. And Abigail Adams, another historical luminary, uh, was home in a, a beautifully named town called Braintree, which uh, was very visual. And um, her husband, John, was on his diplomatic mission in Europe, and she wrote her musings on the, uh, the, the dark day, in, in which she spells Friday with a Y. I guess that was a thing. I love it. So some of this early, you know, American kind of journaling, it always it almost has this like whiff of old English kind of Canterbury tales to it. Um, so she says, on Friday, the 19th of May, the sun rose with a thick, smoky atmosphere, indicating dry weather, which we had for 10 days before. Soon after eight o'clock in the morning, the sun shut in and it rained half an hour. After that, there arose light, luminous clouds from the northwest and the wind at southwest. They gradually spread over the hemisphere till such a darkness took place as appears in a total eclipse. By 11 o'clock, candles were light up in every house. The cattle retired into the barns, the fowls to roost and the frogs croaked. We got frogs here too, and they're not having this either. The greatest darkness was about one o'clock. It was three before the sky assumed its usual look. All right, things are returning back to normal. About eight o'clock in the evening, almost instantaneously, the heavens were covered with Egyptian darkness. Objects the nearest to you could not be discerned, though the moon was at her full. I hope some of our philosophical geniuses will endeavor to investigate so unusual an appearance. Yeah, 
And this is a thing that would stick around in the American, you know, uh, collective conscience for many, many years to come. Um, the sun did come out the next day. You know, there was no plague of, you know, raining blood from the sky or, or demons or, you know, locusts or whatever. Um, but it was really scary. And these pure, very puritanical people um, would have absolutely been in fear of some sort of, you know, judgment day, some sort of doom being meted down upon them from on high. And, you know, we see these theories and these kind of, you know, armchair prophecies happening in, of course, letter writing, because that was the only way people could communicate across long distances. So it took some time before people realized that they had had this kind of shared experience, right, Ben? Yeah, that's right. So as so often happens with the human species, people could agree on roughly what they saw, but they could not agree on why it happened. And a lot of folks especially the more religious bent, felt that this was a divine shot across the bow of humanity. You know, this was a warning. One Massachusetts farmer even wrote, Oh, backsliding New England, attend now to the things which belong to your peace before they are forever hid from your eyes. And the Boston Independent Chronicle called this, quote, a portentous omen of the wrath of heaven in vengeance denounced against the land, the immediate harbinger of the last day when the sun shall be darkened and the moon shall not give her light. This is, uh, these are just two examples of people who were certain that the end was still coming, that this might have not been the technical end of days, but it was the beginning of something else. And then other people tried to argue a few more secular causes for this dark day. Uh, someone said a blazing star had passed between the earth and the sun. Someone else said there were aqueous, sulfurous, bituminous, selenius, vitreous particles uh, that were spread into the uh, atmosphere by something. I'm sorry, Ben. That sounds like some Willy Wonka speak right there. What were those again? Aqueous, sulfurous, bituminous, selenius, vitreous particles? It's got some alchemical vibes. Oh, my gosh, uh, I love it. And then one person who I really strongly identified with just said ash. Yeah. Well, they said more than ash. Right, but. right, 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 right. That makes a lot of sense. You know, but why limit yourself to one word when like seven are available for you to throw around? <laughs> Um, but yeah, there's another description. Oh gosh, here's some more great words. Uh, one commentator, uh, as documented in this American Heritage article, commented on vast quantities of elastic, heterogeneous vapors generated in consequence of the great body of snow which covered the earth so long the winter passed and exhaled during the warm, dry weather. Yeah, that one sounds right. Mm. I think that, that that's, that's as good an explanation as any, right? Yeah, it's not bad. It's interesting because this became a perfect conceptual venue for Enlightenment ideas to debate uh, the pre-existing religious ideas and values. You know, there weren't scientific journals or widespread academies yet, but there was this emerging culture of scientific inquiry that was sweeping the Western world a revolution of its own in a way. And because of this, in part, New Englanders 
would not forget that dark day. They said many more than seven words about it. It lived on in folklore and poems and diaries. It was mentioned in sermons and churches across the region for generations afterward. And I did a bit of a bait and switch uh, at the beginning of the episode because I said it remains a mystery in the modern day. That's technically true, but there is, we're going to go through the theories now, and there is one theory that stands out as by far the most plausible. But first, let's talk about the secular stuff. Could it have been a crazy bunch of clouds? Could it have been uh, some kind of eclipse? Could it have been a volcanic eruption half a world away? Well, Let's see. What do, what do you think? What do you think about the clouds, Noel? Could it have been just some wackadoo clouds? Uh, that seems like a bit of a stretch. Seems like there needs to be more at play than just like weird clouds. Um, but, you know, I'm I'm no cloud scientist. I, I do remember from school that there's cumulus, cumulonimbus, and stratus, if I'm not mistaken. So is this what, like another category we're talking about? But yeah, a solar eclipse was able to be ruled out because these, you know, as we know, right, from the uh, episode about the bait and switch of the gods, even ancient cultures were able to kind of predict when solar eclipses would happen. And this is not a thing. Oh my goodness gracious, this uh, amazing Icelandic volcano name. I'm going to do my best. I think we've done it before. In 2010, the eruption of the great Icelandic volcano, Eyjafjallajökull. I don't know. Icelanders, correct me. But that definitely pumped enough ash into the atmosphere that could have uh, caused something like this uh, to happen. That particular eruption actually grounded flights all across Northern Europe. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Me. Focus Features presents Back to Black. I want people to hear my voice and just forget their troubles. Experience the music and her story. Know this. I ain't no spy girl. Like never before. That's my daughter. That's my Amy. Big screen. I want to be remembered for just being me. Amy Winehouse, Back to Black, directed by Sam Taylor Johnson. Rated R, under 17, not a minute without parent, only in theaters May 17th. Today I'm going to give you some straightforward advice on how to deal with naughty kids. How about instead of timeouts, time ins? Time for you to start paying some bills. I'm JB Smoove, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a giggillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit att.com slash hypergig for details. I actually, because of a previous episode of uh, Stuff They Don't Want You to Know, I actually did learn the pronunciation of this volcano. Ayafatla Yoko. Nice, nice. You know, I, I, I was trying to dig deep back into my memory banks uh, uh, for that very pronunciation that you um, that you gave, but I, I think I, I think I fell a little short. But thanks for thanks for <sighs> clarifying. I, I I still butchered it. 
Uh, so please, Icelanders, write to us. Let us let us know. Hopefully, our attempts are at the very least endearing. But yeah, you're right. An eclipse doesn't make sense. Clouds can go low enough to require cars to use their lights, their headlights during daytime, but neither of those explain things. And the issue with the volcano comes to us from a guy named Thomas Chulerton, who is a professor of atmospheric science at the University of Manchester. And he confirms, yes, ash clouds from volcanoes can cause what we would describe as yellow days. We know that eruptions at Mount St. Helens in Washington State have lowered light levels pretty recently in the past few decades. But the problem here, he says, is that there's no record of volcanic activity in 1780. And so if there was an eruption that could make an ash cloud big enough to create this effect, someone would have known about it. It would be documented somewhere, and it's simply not. He also says, hey, and I love his vibe here. He says, it could maybe be a meteorite. It probably isn't, but you can't rule it out completely, which I thought was open-minded. But luckily, with the help of our research associate, Gabe Luzier, we were able to find an eyewitness account that hinted at a more plausible explanation. And this was cool because it was published on May 25th 1780 in the Continental Journal. It's not, you know, it's not too long after the events occurred. And most of the letter is a first-person account of their step-by-step experience encountering the, uh, the yellow day that turned into a dark day. But there's a very interesting thing in about the third paragraph or so where they start looking at the evidence. We get a Batman vibe from this letter writer because while their description of how they felt watching this is very much the same as every other description, they did something different and they started investigating the scene afterward. That's right. Uh, It goes like this. At about 11 o'clock, the darkness was such as to demand our attention and put us upon making observations. At half past 11, in the room with three windows, 24 panes each all open toward the southeast and south. Large print could not be read by persons of good eyes. About 12 o'clock, the windows being still open, a candle cast a shade so well defined on the wall as the profiles were taken with as much ease as they could have been in the night. Huh. At one o'clock, a glen of light, which had continued till this time in the east, shut in, and the darkness was greater than it had been for any time before. Between one and two o'clock, the wind from the west freshened a little, and a glen appeared in the quarter. So, yeah, as I said, that's, that's pretty much on par with everything else people have reported at this time. And then they go on to describe the the things we've heard before, like the woodcocks, which are night birds whistling, the frogs peeping as they would in the evening, even though it was clearly daytime. Here's the kind of Sherlock Holmesy, Batman-esque part. They say, I will now give you what I noticed afterwards. I found the people at the tavern nearby much agitated, among other things which gave them surprise you know, besides the fact that the sun disappeared, they mentioned the strange appearance and smell of the rainwater, which they saved in tube, in a tube. And this author says, 
Upon examining the water, I found a light scum over it, which, rubbing between my thumb and finger, I found to be nothing but the black ashes of burnt leaves. The water gave off the same strong, sooty smell which we observed in the air, and confirmed me in my opinion that the smell mentioned above was occasioned by the smoke, very small particles of burnt leaves, which had obscured the hemisphere for several days past, and were now brought down by the rain. So this person goes on to say what they believe happened was that there was a vast body of smoke from the woods that had been burning for days and days, and then it was condensed by wind, and that this compression of all this junk from this forest fire may have been enough to produce the blackness. So to them, this kind of perfect storm of smoke and wind and weather created the darkness, not the judgment of some divine entity. And they're not the only person who thought this. We have to introduce another guy to the story, a man with the name Cotton Tufts, like a tuft of cotton. That's his real name. Uh, he, he jumped in and echoed the forest fire theory. That's right. He points out that uh, in the woods from Ticonderoga for 30 miles downwards, that's how his description of it, uh, had been for some time on fire uh, with drought that lasted many days and winds at the west and northwest. And he conjectures that these winds carried the smoke and vapors a long, long distance uh, and brought them into that vicinity in the New England region. Uh, and that the sky, as he describes it, became obscured, the air crowded with smoke and vapors, a disagreeable smell like that proceeds from swamp on fire, which this seems not not too too far off the mark to me. What do you think, Ben? Yeah, yeah, I agree. You know, he uh, he's clearly putting the pieces together in a rational, understandable way, but it remains a theory for centuries, right? So before the early 2000s, before about 2006, the idea of a forest fire would still have been mentioned along with things like eclipses or volcanic eruptions or, you know, even stranger fare. But dendrochronology, the study of tree rings, saved the day in 2006. An examination of tree rings in Ontario, Canada, confirmed that there had been a widespread forest fire, that it had sent smoke way over into New England and that coupled with fog and cloud cover could have combined to produce a weather event just like this. So we owe a great deal of thanks to the researchers at the University of Missouri who say the evidence from these tree rings finally found, not just uh, revealed that massive wildfires could cause this, but found where those wildfires occurred. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. 
Focus Features presents Back to Black. I want people to hear my voice and just forget their troubles. Experience the music and her story. Know this. I ain't no Spice Girl. Like never before. That's my daughter. That's my Amy. On the big screen. I want to be remembered. For just being me. Amy Winehouse. Back to Black. Directed by Sam Taylor Johnson. Rated R. Under 17. Not a minute without parent. Only in theaters May 17th. Today, I'm going to give you some straightforward advice on how to deal with naughty kids. How about instead of timeouts, time ins? Time for you to start paying some bills. I'm JB Smooth, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from ATT Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. ATT Fiber, live like a giggillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit ATT.com slash hypergig for details. Those rings inside of trees are like a historical record. Uh, they tell the story of the life of that tree and the, and the history of what's kind of gone on around it. Aaron McCurry, who's a research assistant at the MU College of Agriculture, Food, and Natural Resources Tree Ring Laboratory. Woo, that's a thing. Uh, she says, we think of tree rings as ecological artifacts. We know how to date the rings and create a chronology so we can tell when there has been a fire or drought occurred and unlock the history of the, the, the tree has been holding for years. It's sort of like ice cores, you know, in like more frigid climates. Mm-hmm. And now, 230 years after the dark day, uh, MU researchers have kind of joined forces and written various accounts um, and kind of documented the fire scar evidence to determine that, in fact, the dark day was caused by massive wildfires in Canada. Yep, yep. yep. They walk through how they discovered this. So according to Richard Gayette, the director of the Tree Ring Lab and research associate professor of forestry over there at the University of Missouri, a fire comes along, heat goes through the bark, killing the living tissue. A couple years later, bark falls off, revealing the wood and an injury to the tree. And Richard says, when looking at the rings, you can see charcoal formation on the outside and a resin formation on the top that creates a dark spot. So when they studied these tree rings from the Algonquin Highlands of southern Ontario and multiple other locations, they found there had been a major fire. It happened in, wait for it, 1780. It was big enough to affect atmospheric conditions, and these large smoke columns were carried away into the upper atmosphere. So combining historical accounts with modern technology and physical evidence gave us the opportunity to solve the mystery of New England's darkest day. But luckily, we still have a a lot of cool poems, a lot of cool folklore from the times before the mystery was solved. I know, isn't that funny? This this also has a lot in common with the frog story in that it generated a lot of poetry. Um, And I think we we can end probably on this one from John Greenleaf Whittier, which is a person uh, clearly born to be a a, a poet um, in 1873. And it starts thusly. "'Twas on a May day of the far old year, 1780, that there fell, over the bloom and sweet life of the spring, over the fresh earth and the heaven of noon, a horror of great darkness like the night, in day of which the Norland sages tell the twilight of the gods." 
And I'd like to follow up with his last stanza from that poem. This may well be the day of judgment which the world awaits. Be it so or not, I only know my present duty and my Lord's command to occupy till he come. So at the post where he hath set me in his providence, I choose for one to meet him face to face. No faithless servant frightened from my task. Be ready when the Lord of the harvest calls. And therefore, with all reverence, I would say, let God do his work. We will see two hours. Bring in the candles. And they brought them in. So Lord of the Harvest is kind of a metal name. Very much for, so. Uh, yeah. Christian and not God. to mention the Twilight of the Gods and the Lord of the Harvest. You know, that is a super metal, or at the very least, very Jethro Tull. But man, this is a fascinating concept. And it's one that uh, we, I think we could call this our like fake doomsday. I wish it was a trilogy. What do you call it? A two-part thing. Just a two-parter. It's not a fancy word for two things. It only gets fancy when you start to have three or four. There is. I think it's a duology. Okay. Okay. We could call it a cycle, perhaps. I don't know. But either way, we had two really cool episodes about apocalypses that didn't happen, but people were pretty convinced we're going to. And I think we could have more, you know, peek behind the curtain, folks. Uh, For a while, a few years ago, I really wanted to do a series that was all about incorrect predictions of the apocalypse because you run into them all the time Uh, but something tells me we'll have some more uh, close calls with the end of the world on ridiculous history and we can't wait for you to uh, come along with us on this journey Uh, as always thanks to our super producer Casey Pegram our guest producer Andrew Howard and our research associate the one and only Gabe Lussier. Oh, there's no other. Alex Williams, who composed our theme. Christopher Hasiotis, here in spirit, soon to be here corporeally. We promise we're not going to keep teasing that and not follow through. You just wait and see, folks. Uh, huge thanks to Jonathan Strickland. Thanks in quotation fingers. See you again soon, you murderous cur, you. Um, and Ben, thanks to you. Uh, may all your days be merry and bright and not dark and, and smelly at all. <laughs> Thanks so much, Noel. You know, uh, I'm an overcast guy, but uh, stories like this make me appreciate the sun a little Just more. Just a little. I might go step outside a little bit, uh, or at least open a window. We'll see you next time, folks. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. This episode of Ridiculous History is brought to you by Avalon Waterways. Ben, are you in major need of a vacation right now? Noel, you're a mind reader. I am, and uh, aren't we all? We are. While cruising remains popular, there's something big happening in the industry, and that is, my friend, smaller ships. True story. The intimate ships of Avalon Waterways can go where the big ships can only dream through winding passageways of rolling vineyards and castled hills into the heart of timeless cities and storybook villages. That sounds like a delight. See how Avalon's smaller ships promise greater discoveries, fewer people, and more of everything. Limited time. Special offers await at avalonwaterways.com.
Top Thrill 2 is like no other course. Two 420-foot vertical speedways, three launches. All right, let's talk strategy. Copy that, driver. Go for maximum acceleration off the start. Measure that. You've got a short straightaway to push from 0 to 74 on the first vertical speedway. And what about the rollback? Rollback will set you up for an explosive reverse climb 420 feet in the sky so you reach 0 Gs in total weightlessness. 420 feet of straight-up speed. Let's get it. Top Thrill 2, the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch Stratocoaster. Get your tickets at cedarpoint.com. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited-time 2% cashback on purchases. And pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024.